I guess I'm having a quarter life crisis, <laughs> but instead <laughs> of buying a red sports car, I'm just painting my house um, rainbow colored. I was really shocked. <laughs> walked in there's stuff everywhere every room is a different color <laughs> i'm definitely like doing it secretly like i'm not posting about it yeah. i'm not telling anybody yeah um but i think what spurred it is i was looking at like a magazine and i'm so fucking sick of chip and joanna Gaines. <laughs> like i'm sick of it's all white chip lap and yeah. then ev- the top of everybody's walls is gray yeah. or tan all of their houses look the same where's the personality like, where did everybody's personality go <laughs> yeah and, and they'll always be like and as a gift for you we had our friend make you a giant farmhouse style table and that's <laughs> like, like that's what you did for the last couple. Right. You just did the same thing again. Like, <laughs> and it's like, it's not that it doesn't look good. It's yeah. beautiful. But it, when you see it in every single one of your friend's houses, you're like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done with this. And I can't a, do it anymore. And as a person who basically spends their entire career in flipper houses, um, it's also what everyone is doing. And like, right. and it can be done really well and, and it can reflect people's style, but you can always really tell when it like, just doesn't you know yeah. i don't know so, so i'm at the opposite of the no spectrum. shame to you if you have a farmhouse style table um <laughs> or shiplap or, or your or any of it or gray. any of it it's fantastic <laughs> but we're not here to talk about interior design no we're here to talk about history on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we are not historians no (laughs) we are googlers youtubers Mm -hmm. podcast Mm -hmm. listeners but Definitely no history in our um, no. lives. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so perhaps you're painting. Perhaps you're painting your house. And because you I know, just insulted your ship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're painting, you're redoing. Everybody's bored because we're seeming seemingly back in, you know, COVID world. May 2020, 2019, whatever the hell this year started. <laughs> um, and so you don't want to get paint on your phone by looking these women up. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who... Well, actually, no. What does your person look like? And I'm going to try and guess. You can try and guess. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Okay. This woman was a badass feminist with flamboyant clothing she had short hair an adorable gap tooth smile her outfits were typically topped off with a cowboy hat and pink glasses that um hovered over her false eyelashes that she lovingly called her daffy ducks there are only two ways that you would see this woman in public one in front of a crowd speaking out about injustice or two sitting back looking very tired of this shit and honestly, producer said it best when he said he thinks little Nas X stole her look. <laughs> I have no idea who this person is. And okay. they're so distinctive. Very distinctive. And I think if you saw a picture of her, you'd be like, oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. So it's Florence Kennedy who goes by oh. Flo. And she's very fun and like did a lot of travel circuits with Gloria Steinem. So uh. she's always in the pictures, but yeah. not many people know her name, which is a disgrace. Perfect. Really <laughs> fun, really so fun person. Okay. <laughs> this drink is super cute and hot, so I can't even begin to guess who this is. Okay. So my lady 
was forced to change her hair color about a dozen times over her long career in Hollywood. But she is most known for having long, flowing red locks. She has a square face with an incredibly sharp jawline and a wide smile that stretches from ear to ear. But when she wants to, her whole face can drop in an instant. Her most famous look is a black satin strapless dress, but I prefer the green flowy one she has often seen. She has danced with the likes of Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire. She is known as the sex goddess of Hollywood. She's Rita Hayworth. Oh, <laughs> we've been talking about doing her for a while. For a while. And I was like, I'm going to do it. I want to dive into her story. Yeah. I'm so excited. So yeah, I'm doing Rita Hayworth. Well, tonight. because we said that Rita, I think when we mentioned her, we talked about her being like having brown hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but yep. it's changed a lot. It changed a lot. And we'll figure out why in her story. But <laughs> Okay. Um, tell me what I'm drinking because it looks so good. Okay. So this is called Wake Up With Me. And it is an ounce and a half of coconut rum, an ounce of amaretto, um, a half ounce of liqueur 43, and you top it off with warm coffee. You rim the glass with lemon juice, sugar, and nutmeg and cinnamon, and you top the whole thing off with whipped cream. So this is based off of a Spanish coffee. And, you know, you're supposed to light it on fire. That wasn't really working for me. So it's not on fire, but it does have coconut rum instead of regular spiced rum for a little Hollywood flair. Ooh, so cheers. cheers. Mm. It's so good. It's also so jarring drinking a hot drink mm-hmm. in this space <laughs> when it's very cold here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, I love it. I love it. I think the whipped cream, like, get, with the sugar on top is... Mm. In perfect contrast to like the bitterness of the coffee and the alcohol. Yeah. Mm. I like the, mm. I feel like I'm already feeling a little tipsy. Mm. Um, it's funny. I, the coconut is not coming through as much no, as I thought I it really would. Taste it. I'm tasting more amaretto, but mm-hmm. yeah, the, and, but you need to have the whipped cream on top. Yeah. That's for sure. It is definitely what makes um, it. You need to soften it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. So like, I'm not drinking in January, um, other than like podcasts or if we're like out somewhere special. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm definitely going to be more tipsy tonight than I normally oh, yeah. am mm-hmm. because I haven't drank in, like, since, I mean, we didn't have Sunday night dinner, so I didn't go anywhere. So I haven't right. drank since last podcast. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. That's, like, long for me. That's a really long Especially time. Especially since because I drink every day. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell Jake it's like weightlifting on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday so that I don't get super hungover by on my Thursday. (laughs) I'm just working out my alcohol muscles. That's terrible. Don't ever do that. That's that's an addiction. Okay. All right. So what do you know about Rita Hayworth? So Rita Hayworth, I know that she, she's stunning. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that she, um, got more respect, I think, than somebody like a, a Marilyn Monroe, even mm-hmm. though she's also kind of seen as a sex symbol. Um, she seemed to just be more of like a highbrow sexy to me, or mm-hmm. at least that's the way I've always pictured her in my brain. Um, but I don't know anything about her personal life, you know, other than just like, here are pictures of the most top 10 most beautiful Hollywood yeah. icons from the golden era, you know? Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to learn about her. Okay. Um, so... I got most of this from a really great Vanity Fair article by Hadley Hall Mears called The Love Goddess, Rita Hayworth's Tragic Quest. I got the other half from a YouTube documentary. Um, I don't know 
what it was, what who produced it or whatever. It was just one of the ones on YouTube. Um, and then, of course, Wikipedia. And I do want to warn you guys, this is not an easy story. Um, like with like someone the likes of like Judy Garland or something, there's a lot of just like awful things that happen to this person. Um, so it's also going to seem kind of like, and then it happened again, and then it happened again, and then she made a movie, and then it happened again, and it's like, it's a little exhausting, um, and there's talk of abuse, so I just want to give out just like a general warning, um, because, yeah, this isn't the funnest story, but it is interesting. <laughs> Poor Rita! I know. Okay. Margarita. Carmen Cancino. Stop. How are we not drinking margaritas? <laughs> I, know, I hate you. I, know. I hate you right now. She was born on October 17th, my wedding day, oh my 1918, gosh. in Brooklyn, New York. She was the oldest child and only daughter of two dancers. Her father, Edward Eduardo Cancino, was a Spanish bolero dancer of Romani descent who grew up in a little town outside of Spain and actually came from a famous dancing family in Spain, the Dancing Cancinos. Her mother was Volga Hayworth. She was a vaudeville showgirl and a dancer with the Ziegfeld Follies. And it was very clear that Rita was to follow in the family business. So Rita is Hispanic. Yes. I didn't know that. I know. I had no idea. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Um, they did a good job of hiding it when yeah, she yeah, got yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we have that box, right, on... Mm -hmm. um, applications now it's like white hispanic or white yeah. non-hispanic right mm -hmm. because race and ethnicity are so different oh yeah and it's interesting too because i was watching one of the documentaries and they're like yeah they got her to look just white enough to actually play like an ethnic woman in a movie oh isn't that fucked god up? i know hate that i know it oh, sucks <sighs> so uh, while her brothers got to go to school, Rita's father kept her in the dance studio. She said she really started training at the age of three and a half, and it didn't take long for her to get on a stage. Shortly before her fifth birthday, she was one of the four dancing casinos featured in the Broadway production of the Greenwich Village Follies at the Winter Garden Theater. Then, in 1926, the family moved to Hollywood so Eduardo could pursue his show business dreams. He started a dance school there, and he kind of tried to find work as, like, a choreographer and, like, kind of like a background dancer for movie studios. It was a little kind of unclear exactly what his plan was, um, but... He did work with some famous people, um, and then after a few years, business kind of started to dry up. Um, you know, it's also the 1920s so there's the great depression going on like there's a lot going on in the 20s um so as business started to slow down he needed some other way to make money so he turned to rita and when she was just 12 years old she officially became her father's dance partner her hair was already dark brown, but her father decided to dye it black to give her a more latin appearance and also to make her look older they did that too. Um, was it Sofia Vergara mm -hmm. who has like yeah she blonde has naturally hair. blonde like bl yeah like light, light blonde. blonde hair yeah or light brown light brown so mm -hmm. she would dye it darker so she could get roles as yep. a Latinx woman yep crazy <laughs> so this crazy. is her dad doing this <laughs> um, and he also needed to make her look older because he would sometimes um, have Rita pose as his wife so they could perform in more places. Um, but many people did not believe that this girl was of age. And since she was too young to work in bars and nightclubs in California, 
Her father would take her down to Tijuana, Mexico, where she would perform in bars and casinos up to four times a day. Four times a day. She is a teenager. Imagine Caroline I <laughs> dancing can't. in a bar four Instead times a day. Instead of going to school. Instead of going to school. They would also perform in illegal gambling boats because, again, they were a little more loose with the rules because there's also, like, prohibition going around at this time. Right. So that was one of the ways that they could get work and people could get booze. Right. They're, like, <laughs> offshore, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this all, of course, kept her exhausted and out of school. Thankfully, she did have a tutor at some points in her life. She mentions it. Um, So she was getting a little bit of an education sometimes. And she did go to high school. She went to Hamilton High School in Los Angeles, but only for a year. And she never graduated. (gasps) And it didn't really seem like school was the right place for her anyways. She was really shy and withdrawn and isolated. Probably because her father had forced her to be isolated. Right. How can you learn social skills? Right. And it's like, you've never been to school before. Here, go to high school. And she was like, what the fuck? And imagine the debauchery you see in like a Tijuana bar 12 times a day. I can't even imagine. Um, Any bar. Not singling out Tijuana. Just that's where she was. Yeah. (laughs) Um, People remember that when she was a child, she would just sit and watch the other children play in silence. Oh. A neighbor recalled watching Rita grow up. She said for Rita, there was no life, no school, no friends, no girlfriends, just sitting, sitting, sitting till it was time to go to Tijuana. And of course, this is mostly because of her demanding, suffocating and abusive father. When that same neighbor would see Rita and her father rehearsing, she said that all she could see was Rita dancing for hours with her father screaming at her for missing steps. And Rita would just stand there silent, just taking the verbal abuse and just she just kept dancing until she got it right. And she definitely didn't have a say when her father would get drunk and gamble away any bit of money they earned. So I'm Mm. sure it's like they're literally performing on these like illegal gambling boats and then he's getting the money and then just gambling it all away right in front of her, like all her hard work. I mean, this is before like there are rules that like parents had to put that money away for you until you turned 18. Yeah. And with him, he's like, well, I'm 50% of the act, you know? So it's like, you know, I'm taking all the money. money. Um, And sometimes after these nights in particular he would send her out to get food by herself uh sometimes it would be like literally going out to the pier with a fishing pole be like catch a fish for dinner and she would and if she came home empty-handed he would hit her carefully so as not to leave any bruises where the audience could see the next night and unfortunately according to some sources her father was also sexually abusing her so he was treating her as a wife on the stage and off the stage. Her mother helped when she could. She would literally like sleep in Rita's bed to try and protect her from her father. Um, But often there was no stopping him. And it's really sad because when she would talk about this time of her life, she would say that she was just proud to be able to earn money for her family any way she could during the Great Depression. And it's like, it's just so sad. I mean, you just couldn't share back then the same no. way we can now. No, you couldn't. And again, she was so isolated. There was like no one to even like try and step in. You know, it seemed to me like it was like her and her dad 
and then the rest of the family mm-hmm. and they were just alone together all the time and just let the abuse run rampant but thankfully a way out soon appeared when she was 16 she was cast in a mexican film cruz diablo and that led to another mexican film called in caliente so is she a fluent spanish speaker as well I don't know. <laughs> okay. I was just curious. I didn't know. If no, she... that's a good question. I mean, it sounds probably like usually if you have parents, like cause her parents, <clears throat> one of them is Spanish. Right. So, her dad so is it Spanish. seems like that her dad probably spoke Spanish. At... I would. So you would think, think so? she's probably bilingual. I don't know though. Cause I yeah. know later in life she had a really hard time with French and they're kind of similar languages. Mm. Um, and also in these movies, she's just dancing. Like she's just kind of a background oh, okay. dancer see, here. So she, I don't really know. Maybe she doesn't have any lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, and soon she caught the eye of an executive at Fox and he had her come in for a screen test and he goes, I think you could really be good for the studio. I want you to be a dancer. And she's like, awesome. He goes, but we have to do something about your name. We're going to call you Rita Cancino instead of Carmen Margarita. (laughs) So the first of her name changes. (laughs) Um, And she had a few small dancing parts in movies. Uh, It was a really good start. It kind of got her like away from her dad a little bit because he wasn't involved in this. Like it seems like it's like this is her thing, her movies. But at the end of a six month contract, she was out of a job again until another man swooped into her life and decided to take it over for himself. In 1937, 18-year-old Rita eloped with a man named Eddie Judson. He was a used car salesman Uh who had dreams of being a movie producer. And he was about the same age as her father. He was around 40 years old. But did she see it as an escape? I honestly, I feel back as it seems like she just like fell in love with him. Mm. And I think that she did see him as an escape, but I also think that she was just like really young and naive and she was like, awesome, like a man paying attention to me that like isn't my fucking dad. Right. Got like, it. Even though he's definitely like a father figure. Like it's right. weird. Uh not weird. It's just like it's upsetting the pattern that is like coming out, right. you know. Um, because of her father's abuse. Um, her parents did not approve of this marriage, uh, would cause a huge rift between her and her entire family. And to make matters worse, she said it only took her six months before she realized that she had married him for love, but he had married her as a business investment. She said, he treated me as if I had no mind or soul of my own. And part of that investment was reinventing Rita Cancino. Eddie felt like she looked too exotic and that's why she wasn't getting any big parts in movies so he changed her name to rita hayworth and then he was like we've got to do something about your look like you look too latin so he made her dye her hair red and then he had her undergo painful electrolysis treatment to change her hairline it took about two years to really finish it cost ten dollars a follicle and they moved her hairline back an entire inch. What? Does that make her look less Latinx? I guess. Like, I <laughs> never thought about I mean, I, yeah, Latinx I mean, hairline. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I mean, they're very thick, beautiful, luscious hair. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the South. So 
So I, I you guess. know, I wonder, like, our sister-in-law, Maria, has, like, stunning hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's from Guatemala, and it's just, like, very thick and dark. And, like, yeah. I can imagine moving your hairline back an inch would change your look dramatically. Yeah, and it did. Like, if you see before and after pictures, like, it is very dramatic. Mm. Um, but it was an extremely painful process. So during the <laughs> procedure, a probe is stuck into each hair follicle, which sends an electric charge through it to destroy the root. Now, this is still done today, but it's not quite the same as laser hair removal. So this one, the probe is going into each follicle, whereas on laser, it seems like they're just kind of going like on top. On the surface of your skin. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah. I mean, it's still done today, but it's not as painful as it used to be, you know? So like, I don't want people to think that, you know, this is like, it it has gotten better. Yes. (laughs) I mean, normal... What be, what is normal now for um, cosmetic surgery is mm-hmm. so much different than what yeah. was normal then. Yep, exactly. Um, and then, along with this huge makeover, Eddie would also try and have her sleep with other men who he could, you know, felt like could get her into the movie business. He was pimping her out? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, I didn't see if, like, she actually went through with any of it. I couldn't really tell. It was just, like, something that one of the articles said. uh, But it was obviously, like, really fucking disturbing. And mind you, like, Rita didn't really want to be doing this. Like, all Rita ever wanted was to, like, be a wife and a mother and stay home and, like, live a quiet life. She wasn't, Um, like, trying to be a starlet. No, she wasn't. And... Eddie made her attend endless events and press releases, which she just absolutely despised. And he would be like, we're going to this bar and this bar and this bar, and you're going to wear this red dress and you're going to try and impress this person. And like just controlling every move that she made. Um, And then he tried to talk to executives and he was like, I have a girl for you. She's going to be the next star. She is going to be the most cooperative girl in Hollywood. That's the most disgusting sentence I've heard. The most Uh cooperative. The most cooperative. (sighs) But I guess Eddie's awful, awful work uh, worked um, because she did land a contract with Columbia Pictures. So she signs this contract. She has, you know, she's going to be in movies. But even after she signed the papers, Eddie was still trying to kind of cement her goodwill at the company. So he was like, this is a big trip for us. We're going to go on Harry Cohn's private yacht. Harry Cohn is an executive at Columbia. And he goes, we're going to go. We're going to hang out with him just so, like, we make sure that, like, he likes you. You like him. Everything is good. And she's like, great. So they're literally, like, about to go on the yacht. And Eddie bails leaving Rita alone with this man, Harry Cohn. And Eddie had told Harry Cohn that Rita was going to sleep with him. And she didn't know this. No, Rita didn't know. Okay. So she's on this boat. This guy, Harry Cohn is like trying to have sex with her. And she is so upset, so offended. And Rita's like, you know what? I'm not going to be cooperative this time. The ink is dry on the contract papers. So if you want to get out of this contract, you're going to have to fucking pay me. I'm not doing this. So she refused, and Harry Cohn never, (laughs) I hate to use this term, forgave her for this. He, like, blacklisted her. Yeah. And this would begin a pattern of disrespect for Rita at Columbia. He would belittle her. 
he would walk in front of her and like pee on the ground, like use the bath and like, and then like use the bathroom in front of her, like really disgusting stuff. He would have people spy on her and report back. He would just talk shit to her and he even bugged her dressing room because she wouldn't have sex with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He made her life like an absolute living He needs hell. to calm down. Yeah. And also like he was making a lot of money off of Rita Hayworth and her pictures her husband was making a lot of money off Rita Hayworth and her pictures, but Rita was making barely anything. That makes me so sad. I know. Just an- another like awful older man trying to control this like 19, 20 year old girl. It's so disgusting. Um, but Harry Cohn did have to at least profit off of her if he couldn't sleep with her. And in 1939, she got her first significant role in an A film, finally, not a B film, <laughs> called Only Angels Have Wings, where she played opposite a very young, very hot Cary Grant. But Harry Cohn wanted to make the most amount of money possible. Um, so for a few years, he would loan her out to other studios for movies, um, where she did start to make a name for herself especially after the Fox film Blood and Sand, where she played the vixen Doña Sol. Now, this was, again, a part where she, it's like people said, like, she was finally looking, like, white enough to play a Spanish woman. Like, you know. (laughs) Um, But it was a pivotal role that solidified her status as a prominent femme fatale. And when she returned to Colombia after her little hiatus, she soon found herself in a leading role opposite dancing legend Fred Astaire in a film called You'll Never Get Rich, where she was able to not only showcase her acting talent, but of course her incredible dancing. Like there is a scene that comes up on Instagram a lot where Fred Astaire is like, you're not doing the dance right. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I guess I didn't learn the routine. He goes, well, like do it with me. And she does it perfectly like it's a tap number and she is just so precise but also like i don't know she just looks so good doing it it's amazing like precise but not robotic yeah exactly i love that in a dancer like when they don't look like they're trying exactly she just didn't look like she was trying at all and shortly after the huge success of that film they also co-starred in you were never lovelier they had just the best chemistry you know on set and Fred Astaire said that she was one of the best dancers he ever worked with he also said her ability to memorize the dances was insane he was like yeah I'd show her the steps before lunch and while she was eating lunch she would play the steps over and over again in her head and then after lunch she was able to do it perfectly he was like it was unbelievable (laughs) step so Rita is like a bona fide movie star at this point, and she wasn't only finding success on the silver screen, but also in military bunkers. (laughs) In August of 1941, for I think like press or something for a film, Rita was featured in an iconic Life magazine photo in which she posed in a negligee with a black lace bodice on a bed. Bob Landry's photo made Rita one of the top two pinup girls of World War II. The other was Betty Grable when hers was released in 1943. But for those first two years, Rita's was the most requested pinup photo in circulation. And in 2002, the satin nightgown she wore for the photo sold for $26,000. 
Oh, it's $26,888. Oh, my so gosh. So almost $27,000. that extra. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and with this new career path, this new success, and a little affair with a co-star, <laughs> Rita finally got up the courage to leave her awful first husband, Eddie. Thank God. I know. They divorced on February 25th, uh, 24th, 1942, after five years of mental and financial abuse. She would later say, he helped me with my career, and then he helped himself to my money. Right before they split, he emptied their safety deposit box, leaving Rita with no money. She even had to, like, invite herself over to friends' houses just to eat sometimes because she had no money of her own right now. It's so upsetting. And then he was threatening to do even more damage by tarnishing her reputation, exposing her relationship with her co-star, and all this other bullshit. So Columbia Movies, they paid him, like, $25,000 on top of what he already stole and what he was already making off of her just to keep him quiet and to Hmm. stay out of her life. But... Rita is now finally in a healthy relationship with a man her age named Victor Mature, and she is also going to be starring in the hit film Cover Girl opposite Gene Kelly. Ooh! This is another one of her big famous roles where, like, you know, the videos are so great. She's dancing in this long, flowing green gown with her red hair flowing behind her, just absolutely gorgeous yeah i always picture rita hayworth in the red hair with the green dress yes i feel like it's just iconic and it's also become just literally what girls with red hair wear. oh yeah they wear so right green like that shade of green to like offset their hair Mm -hmm. and i think it's because of her look oh yeah i would totally agree with that because it's so bold Mm mm-hmm um, so everything is going really great for Rita. Like they say, like this year was one of the best of her lives, her life, <laughs> all nine of her, lives. all She's nine of her lives. Surprise. <laughs> uh, but soon a new gentleman would enter her life and sweep her off her feet and away from poor Victor Aww. Orson Wells. Oh, it is said that when Orson saw the writers light, are typically <laughs> bad for you. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've learned this in this podcast. I know. Don't marry Don't a writer. Them. Don't a male I'm writer. So- <laughs> <laughs> They're too moody. Um, when he saw the Life magazine photo of Rita, he said, I'm going to marry that girl someday. Oh, my God. And he started to relentlessly pursue her writing her tons and tons of letters, declaring his love for her. You'd tell everyone who could listen to him in Hollywood, like, I want to marry Rita Hayworth. So creepy. And she's a little reluctant at first first, because she's a little wary of men, which is totally understandable, especially one that is only pursuing her off of this risque photo. And everyone who knew Rita remarked about what a quiet, shy person she was. You know, like, not this photo... At all. So when Orson does finally meet her and she's like, look, I'm not the girl in the photo. Like, that's not really me. He goes, well, that's even better than I imagined. You're a real person, not just a silly starlet. You know, like this is it even better than my wildest Rita Hayworth dreams. Which, of course, got Rita hook, line and sinker. No, oh, come on, Rita. 
And once the two got together, people couldn't get enough of the new it couple. They called them the beauty and the brain. You know, everybody's really excited. Um, And then they married in a quick civil ceremony at the courthouse on September 7th, 1943. They went down, said, I do. And both went back to work. Like it was literally on their lunch break. (laughs) And Harry Cohn is really mad because he wanted total control over her. And now he's like, you're married. And then within like a couple of months, she was pregnant. And he goes, this isn't the deal. I can't make money off of a pregnant woman. So he's really mad, but whatever. Um, they hadn't started holding bowls of fruit yet in front yeah, of their stomachs. Exactly. So her daughter, Rebecca, was born on December 17th, 1944. And Rita was so happy. She felt like she was finally getting the things that had always been lacking in her life love family and security she saw this as her chance to finally get out of hollywood and away from harry Cohn and just live a quiet family life but unfortunately for rita this dream would be out of reach yet again apparently orson didn't actually want to be a married family man he thought it was too burdensome on his freedom He didn't want to live a quiet life at home. He wanted to be out in the spotlights, at parties, at events. I mean, same. And I think being married to anyone would have been a burden on Orson, but he severely underestimated what it meant to be married to someone with a traumatic past like Rita's. Mm. Orson was the man who met Rita and Rita was like, oh my gosh, he actually likes me. And this made her open up to him. This was the first man that she was really honest with. And I think the first person she told about her father's abuse. And he did not take that well. I just think that I think he took it well initially and he goes, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to be the man who like takes you away from all that. And then he was like, oh, shit, you actually need me to stay home and take care of you. Mm, I don't really want to do that. Like it was just really upsetting. And he just, I don't think he was ready to be the guy that Rita really needed, like an actual loving companion who was consistent, you know, cause I think especially people who are, have been abused, like, you know, consistency is key. It's like, I need to know that you're going to be fucking there for me. And Orson was not. Well, it's, I mean, it's one of the number one problems with, pinups in general male or female Mm -hmm. is that you get this image in your mind of this perfect relationship that doesn't exist like those people in those pictures are real people that have real issues and real needs and real wants and you're not marrying like a dream girl or a dream boy that's gonna do like whatever you want and just like fall to your every need yeah no, absolutely. Sad. And it just sucked because I think he really liked the idea of a woman that, you know, he felt like he could put back together, but he just, he wasn't ready to, for the reality of, he wasn't ready to actually be there, you know, 24 seven. Um, in a way he was the exact opposite of the most men in her life, you know, instead of controlling her, he kind of made her trust him and then abandoned her. I wonder if that's why all the starlets of that era were married so many times. I'm, because people were obsessed with the image of them, oh, that's but not the real person. It. Oh, it's yeah. definitely a big part of it. Um, he would leave her home alone with their young daughter. And, you know, Rita is also just in the throes of a lot of, like, 
just depression and anxiety and she's like oh my gosh like it's happening again and then she learns that he is having many affairs with women and she's like what the fuck like (sighs) it just sucks now there is a lot to this relationship and I feel like kind of with Zelda and Scott like I feel like people take like Rita and Orson sides on this so um, if you want to hear more about the ins and the outs of their relationship um, check out the podcast you must remember this I listened to it for this episode but it was just like too much information like there's a magic show for the troops involved and all this crazy (laughs) stuff (laughs) Um, but what you really need to know for this story is that the marriage was difficult and Rita was absolutely devastated when they separated in 1945. Mm-hmm. They divorced sometime after. And it was just, I think she really thought that like this was the one. Um, but in the midst of all this, Rita is making her most well-known movie, Gilda, which was released in 1946. This is by far her most famous role. Uh, She starred alongside Glenn Ford, who would become a lifelong friend and lover. The two carried on this friendship affair, whatever, that lasted for almost 40 years. But they said they're like, you know, Rita ends up getting married a couple more times. Glenn Ford was married four times. They're like, one of us was always married. So we just thought, let's just keep it light. (laughs) Let's just do it on the side. Yeah. Fine. Um, So, I mean, this movie was huge. And it it has a song, you know, put the blame on MAME. And, like, there's, like, the more she sings in the club or she's doing the striptease. And then there's, like, a really pared down version with a guitar. And even though, like, she had a lot more clout at this time, she really wanted to sing in the movie. And Harry Cohn just absolutely refused, which always really hurt her feelings because she was like I can do it if you just fucking let me and you give me voice lessons right and he goes why would we pay you for like to go to do voice lessons when we can just pay someone else to sing for you and then it was really embarrassing when she would go on like USO tours and they'd be like sing for us Gilda and she'd be like ah I can't I can't it wasn't me you know and she was like I know I could have done it if they just given me voice lessons super annoying um (laughs) but people knew rita as a talented dancer and a good actress but this is the role that would solidify her as the love goddess which is an actual title that they gave her very big to live up to (laughs) (laughs) honestly my god like they knew that she was really attractive and sexy but now she was officially a seductress her sex appeal was so strong so powerful that they put a picture of rita on the side of the atomic bomb which was scheduled to be tested at Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean's Marshall Islands. With the name of her character alongside of it, they named the bomb Gilda. It was meant as a compliment. They were like, no, we're saying you're the ultimate bombshell. Like, it's a really nice thing. Nope. but hate that. No, and much like the rest of what happened after the success of Gilda, she really fucking hated it she was i don't want to be associated with a nuclear bomb like what the <laughs> hell That's like the worst. and no and she even wanted to go to dc to lobby to get her picture removed from it but harry Cohn wouldn't let her he said it would look too unpatriotic 
and he wasn't about to lose out on all of this free publicity. So all of this new press and attention and whatnot and the sad split from Orson Welles drove Rita into further seclusion and she really starts to drink heavily. Like she drinks a lot, but like now she's like really kind of getting into it. Um, the pressure of being the love goddess Gilda was really stifling and Rita started to really resent the fact that everyone expected her to be exactly like Gilda, bold, brash, outgoing, and super sexual. But Rita was none of those things. She was shy, reserved, and she was sad. Her most famous quote is, men go to bed with Gilda, but they wake up with me, which is why I named this cocktail after and it's so sad. It's also um, Julia Roberts quotes her in the film Notting Hill, which I love. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, much like Orson Welles, people weren't prepared for dealing with a real person who was at the end of the day, Margarita Cancino. No one wanted Margarita, Carmen Margarita Cancino. They wanted Rita Hayworth, who mm. is an image. Right. You know? It's fake. Yeah. And... I don't know. It just always really bothered her because then she felt like every person she met was like, she was like letting down because she wasn't Gilda. Right. It's just, yeah. I think a lot of the starlets at this time had that pressure of their big roles, but I think that it it affected Rita maybe most of all. Mm. After Gilda, she made the lady of Shanghai, which was written and directed by Orson Welles. (laughs) Orson was blacklisted at the time. So he used his connection with Rita to convince Columbia to make it. Mm. And Rita used it as a latch last ditch effort to save her marriage. And it did not work. No, no. Then in 1948, she made another movie, The Loves of Carmen, which she got to showcase um, her Spanish dancing skills again. And this year, she established her own production company, which was really exciting, the Beckworth Corporation, uh, which is named Beckworth because it's a combination of her daughter's name and her name, you know, so uh, Rebecca and Hayworth. But after doing so many movies in a row, suffering from her failed relationship, Rita was like, I need to take some time off. I'm going to go relax in Europe, go on holiday for myself. I'm going to be by myself. And it was here where she met the famously wealthy Prince Ali Khan of Pakistan. Here we go. (laughs) And Rita, after not knowing him very long, was ready to give up Hollywood forever and become a princess. So she stayed in Europe, broke her contract with Columbia, basically said, F you guys, I'm not coming back. And she gets together with the prince. Here we are for making your own decisions. I mean, you must run away with the prince. Please, at least once in your life. (laughs) I've never done it, but I highly suggest it. Shortly after her her divorce, like her official divorce from Orson Welles was finalized, there may have been a bit of overlap here. Um, And Khan's divorce from his wife was finalized. More overlap. The two were married in a grand ceremony on May 27th, 1949, making her the first American celebrity to become a princess. Take that, Grace Kelly. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And in December of 1949, she gave birth to their daughter, Princess Yasmin Aga Khan. Similar to with Orson, 
Rita again thought that this was going to be your chance to settle down and become a doting wife and mother. But being the wife of a politician prince is just as public and exhausting as being a star. I mean, you need to know that before you go into it. You can't just marry a prince. (sighs) I know. And it was just endless. And the paparazzi were so aggressive that once they swarmed her at a party and they were crowding her so much that she like was like suffocating and she lost like her breathing and she passed out at this party. And then apparently when she came to someone was yelling at her because when she fainted, she spilled champagne on them. (laughs) Champagne's clear. Shut up. Shut up. It's fine. And when Rita just couldn't take the constant partying anymore, because it's like, oh, it's a lot. I mean, it's constant, like, you know, political events, you know, socialite parties, like it's and traveling to every European city. Like, I mean, it's you have a lot. To. You have to if you're married to a prince. Yeah. And so after a little while, she would just lock herself in her room while the parties were raging downstairs and she would just dance by herself to her favorite Spanish music. The thing is, Rita was an introvert. And she needed time to recharge. And Prince Ali's life was so fast-paced. There was simply no time for that. And the more time she wasn't there, the more events she didn't go to, the more opportunities for him to cheat on her. So it's like, do I stay with him so he doesn't fucking cheat on me? Or do I push myself to the brink of exhaustion and keep going? There's just no winning i just also don't understand why for literally every single woman you have to be present at every event or your husband will cheat on you does that make any sense like what why i i hate it i every single one of her husbands cheated on her which is so depressing and it happens in so many stories like we we even saw it in like when we did yoko ono's story and like yoko ono's at the party yeah and john lennon cheats on her like while she's downstairs like do what exactly like i don't understand i don't understand either it's it's also uh, it sucks so it was also a bit difficult for rita to try and keep up with the other politicians and their wives and the social issues you know again she didn't receive a great education so she often felt really stupid and everyone is pressuring her to learn french french so she can communicate with more european people and she really struggled with it she just couldn't get it and she just felt dumb and feeling dumb and then feel and like being cheated on it's just like a horrible combination and then on top of that being just simply exhausted And the fights that would ensue between her and Khan were legendary. Huge screaming fits with plenty of items being thrown around the house. And in one instance, apparently she (gasps) ordered a maid to get her a glass of orange juice just so she could throw it in his face. (laughs) Oh my God, same. (laughs) And after two years, she separated from the prince and returned to America. Apparently, when the reporters flanked her at the airport, one journalist asked what she was going to do in America. Rita replied, 
Well, the first thing I'm going to do is have a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) I came this close to serving this cocktail with a hot dog Uh, on the side because of that. Katie, excuse (laughs) me. Because I love to pair my cocktails with food. I'm starving (laughs) here. Could have used a hot dog. But it was just, I didn't want to go to the store. There aren't even any hot dogs in the store anymore. There's no meat left. This is the apocalypse. We're in the apocalypse yet again. (laughs) Welcome. This is the second of the seven horses. (laughs) And the second thing Rita had to do was go back to Columbia and put herself at the mercy of Harry Cohn. She was a single mother of two now, and she had to get her job back. So her big comeback picture was an affair in Trinidad. Um, when she was again paired with her Gilda co-star Glenn Ford, she didn't particularly want to do this film, uh, but Mm. she was great in it. And the film made a lot of money after that. It was the film Salome, which is another big success, but unfortunately (laughs) Rita never stayed single for long. And she was charmed by yet another man during this time, a fledgling nightclub singer named Dick Hames. And if you want, a quick synopsis of who Dick Hames is. His nickname was Mr. Evil around Hollywood. I don't know whether this came before or after Rita. Wow. That's like that guy <laughs> in New York who was with, um, oh my gosh, who's the red haired guy in New York with like the crazy sex swing. <laughs> That was in one oh, of your stories. Satan's Whiskers. <laughs> yes. yes. I forget his name, but his nickname was Satan's Whiskers because yes. that's what we named the cocktail after. <laughs> so like her first husband, Dick had a lot to gain from his marriage to Rita. We'll start off with the fact that he was struggling financially due to poor crowds at his singing shows and the mounting legal bills from unpaid child support from his first two wives. Wow. He was also indebted to the IRS for $100,000. Red flags, girl. Red flags. Rita not only paid off most of his debts for him, but she would tour with him so that more people would come to his shows because if people heard that Rita Hayworth was going to be there, they would come. So now she's on the road going to nightclubs every night, exactly what she again doesn't want to be doing. (laughs) And then to put on top, just the nice cherry on top of all of his problems was he was being threatened with deportation because he did not come to the U S from Argentina legally. So they think that that's why she married him, you know, because I think, from what I can tell, I don't think that she went into this marriage thinking this is the love of my life like she had with some of the other ones. Yeah. Um, so the two were married in Las Vegas. <laughs> red flag. Again. Again. Red flag. On September 24th, 1953. But it wasn't just Dick's troubles they were burdened with. Rita herself was in a fierce custody battle with Ali Khan and she was in lawsuits with Columbia Records. I was going to ask if she got to keep the princess baby. Yes. Yasmin. Yes. Okay. For now. But Dick made this custody battle even worse when he convinced Rita to leave the kids with his mother while they're on tour with his musical group. Unbeknownst to Rita, his mother left the children alone. And Princess Yasmin is a baby. And Rebecca is like a toddler. So people found out 
It was reported to social services and the kids were taken away from Rita and she was officially charged with neglect in order to pay her legal fees. And again, all of Dick's debt, she had to sell her production company. But Ali Khan and Orson Welles defended her in court saying Rita would not neglect her children on purpose. This is not her fault. And the charges were dropped. Yeah. Weren't paying her child support, but they did do that. All right. All right. I mean, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. Uh, And on top of all of the problems that Dick Hames was causing in her life, he also just so happened to be one of the more physically abusive husbands. And many witnesses saw him punch Rita in the face at the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, leaving her with a giant black eye. After that, she got up the courage to leave him and they were divorced after two years. Seems like two is the awful number here. So after the Hames disaster, Rita was ready to get her life back on track. She wanted a fresh start away from the love goddess persona. And she was like, I want to do more mature acting roles, you know? Mm. So in 1957, she starred in Fire Down Below and then the film Pal Joey with Frank Sinatra. And apparently when Columbia wanted to put Sinatra's name first, he refused, saying Rita Hayworth is one of the greatest stars of our time and she should get stop, top billing. Nice. Thanks, I, Frank. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Um, and with one last successful Columbia movie, she was finally able to leave the company. And she was able to leave Harry Cohn, whom she always referred to as a monster, and she never looked back. She was just so happy to be done with them. Um, so she's out of Columbia. She gets to do some, you know, other productions. Uh, and she really gets to show off her dramatic chops in the film Separate Tables. Um, she received really great reviews. Um, but it also <laughs> brought another man into her life. <laughs> the producer of the film, James Hill. They married on Zach and Olivia's birthday, February 2nd, 1958. (laughs) And she was again hoping to settle down. And he was again hoping to use Rita to his advantage. She again wanted to take a break from the movies to recharge, but James didn't want to stop. He had finally had his star, the perfect woman to make his movies come to fruition. And when Rita was kind of re- reluctant, they he would get really angry, and the two of them would get into these awful, awful fights. Famed actor Rex Harrison said that one of the worst nights of his life was having dinner with the two of them. He said James heaped obscene abuse onto Rita until she was weeping at the dinner table. Rex Harrison called it a marital massacre i mean honestly the worst thing is being around a couple that's fighting in front of you it is the worst so (laughs) uncomfortable it's so so uncomfortable just no thank you i no it's so bad (laughs) and in september of 1961 she final she filed for her final divorce that's husband number five The beginning of the 60s was not a good time for Rita. Her fifth marriage had just failed. She was drinking quite a lot. And 
she's becoming more and more forgetful and more erratic and angry. And it's just things just kind of seem to be falling apart. In 1961, she tried to go to Broadway. She was cast to be the star in a play called Step on a Crack. And she was like, this is it. I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to get on the stage. I'm going to do this dramatic role. But when she got there, she just, she couldn't fucking memorize her lines. And she was like, what the fuck? Like, I used to not have a problem with this. Like, what's wrong with me? She's so good at memory. I know. And it just, I don't know. So she like got up on stage and in rehearsal, she like literally couldn't say her lines i mean drinking does that to your brain yeah and so she ended up not doing the show which was really disappointing oh no wait is she struggling with dementia so she made one last film with glenn ford in 1964 called the money trap Mm -hmm. and then she bopped around some other projects of course appearing on the carol burnett show which she was great in and laughing but in 1972 on the the set of the film wrath of god her final movie it seemed as if her short-term memory had now completely evaporated she was making this movie one line at a time she'd memorize the one line shoot the scene and then have to work for quite some time on the next it was exhausting it took forever she was frustrated and then she would fly in these fits of rage One night, she invited her fellow movie star friend, Ann Miller, and her really old friend, Hermes, to to dinner. And so they knocked on the door, and she opened the door with a butcher knife. And she was like, how dare you invade my private property? I don't see autograph seekers get away from my house. And they thought she was kidding. And then she started moving towards them with the knife, like screaming at them. And it was just like, what the hell? And then the next day, Rita called Anne and she was like, why didn't you show up for dinner? Her old friend and sometimes lover, Glenn Ford, would spend the night sometimes just to keep her company and calm her down when she got confused. There was even one night when Orson Welles was talking to her and she had no idea who he was for about four minutes. And when it dawned on her, She just cried uncontrollably because she didn't understand what was going on. Rita already had a bit of a problem with alcohol, but now she was relying on it to cope with her growing frustration and confusion, which meant people initially thought that her problem was simply alcoholism. But it wasn't. Booze was definitely not helping, but what people didn't know, and what you kind of alluded to earlier, Mm. was that Rita was suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. She wasn't officially diagnosed. Um, for... You mean my biggest fear? Yeah. I. Both of us have grandmothers I know, that I know struggle with that. And I'm like, me. I know it is. I also think I have vertigo, but that's another story. Honestly, can somebody, can <sighs> somebody in the medical field fix this before I, I turn just, 60? It's so upsetting. And like, I'm getting close to 60. So this is an issue. I'm like on the verge of 40. It's just so upsetting. And like, that's around the age that she is. Like, I know. She's so young. Ugh. But she wasn't officially diagnosed for like another decade until 1980 or 81. And frankly, it was a huge sigh of relief (laughs) for most people in her life because her friends and her family finally had an explanation. And, you know, they could manage it because they knew they weren't dealing with like, you know, a raging alcoholic. And it like and Rita could finally say like, you know, like obviously the drinking is a problem, but it's not 
my only problem. Like, this isn't my fault. Like, this is a disease that is infecting my fucking brain. So her diagnosis became public knowledge in 1981, and it was such a blessing to so many people. Even though the disease had been discovered in the early 1900s, people had kind of forgotten about it. Because And it wasn't really diagnosed very often because people were like, they're just old. They're being forgetful. Or like with Rita, they're like, no, she's just drinking too much. Yeah. Like there are always excuses for this that don't didn't initially point people towards a disease. And have you seen images of brains like with people with like Alzheimer's no. and like dementia? It's like literally like sections of your brain like turn gray oh. as it like reaches out like across like your brain stem area oh, it's God. not just like oh i'm forgetful it's like your brain is literally eating itself alive yeah well and i think the um the scenes of her getting upset mm-hmm. and flying into like i think that people also forget that that's a big part of it like I, Karen Kilgariff, the co-host of My Favorite Murder, her mother had um, Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. she was like taking care of my mother when she was like in the throes of it. She was like, it was like living with like a shark in the house. Mm. She was like, it just, you never knew when it was going to happen. And she was like, and sometimes you were just, it was just, it felt daunting and exhausting all the time because you never knew what was going it, it was just awful. Like yeah. it felt like you were drowning. Right. With a shark in the room. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, it was awful. Um, But because she became the first public face of Alzheimer's, people all of a sudden started being like, I have those symptoms. And they started to go to the doctors and like family members got to find out what the hell was going on. And it led to like a lot more diagnoses of the disease and a lot more research because people were coming forward with it. And... It just, it helped to ensure that future patients didn't go undiagnosed. And now we have more people to study the disease. She was too far gone to know it at the time, but because of her, the disease was also greatly destigmatized and a lot of families could get help for their loved ones and not feel quite as embarrassed. Her last years were spent in an adjoining apartment in New York City under the care of her youngest daughter, Yasmin. When asked how she was doing, Yasmin would answer, she's still beautiful, but it's a shell. And you can really see it. I mm. feel like there is like a specific look in like Alzheimer's patient's eyes. Like mm-hmm. it just is so far away. And you can see in pictures of her, she's just so far away. And in February of 1987, she lapsed into a coma. And three months later, on May 14th, 1987, Rita Hayworth passed away. She was 68 years old. She left behind an incredible legacy, fantastic movies, and a new outlook for many people suffering from Alzheimer's. And even though there were a lot of ups and downs in her life, she wanted to pe- she wanted people to take a positive angle. She once said, whatever you write about me, don't make it sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's Rita. the story of Rita Hayes. It's such like it's such a sad story because it she is. dealt with so much, but it seems like she kept a positive outlook as long as she could, mm-hmm. which is like really sweet. It's just I don't know. It's touching to know stories like that, and it's also like super depressing. I know. I just like 
And that was one thing, like when you say it like all in a row, I think that there was a lot of joy in her life in between these sad moments that we have to think about. And that's why she's like, don't make it sad. Like I did have good times in my life, but like just all these fucked up men. (laughs) And then by the time she was like really done with men, she had fucking Alzheimer's, you know, and it's just so terrible. So yeah, but that's the story of Rita. Poor Rita. Yeah. But sometimes so it takes like it takes somebody that big to make it, you know, like so Angelina Jolie getting a double mastectomy. Like, Did she really? Yeah. Oh my god, She's, I didn't know that. Yeah, she got a double mastectomy after she got tested for the Brock gene, maybe like I want to say like ten years ago. She was married to Brad Pitt. It was early in their relationship. And it just like made it okay for women to be like, Yeah, I'm getting both of my boobs cut off. Our cousin just yeah, did that. Just Megan. Like this past week posted about it. I know. She was like, I just, I can't, I I'm got just going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. She said she something like she had a 48% chance. And yeah. it's like, I don't want a half chance of dying on my kids. My yeah. kids are young. Like that's not what I want. Like yeah. now breast cancer doesn't run in my family. So I don't have to get tested yet yeah. for the Brock gene, but it did run in her family. But like, that's what Angelina Jolie like came out very publicly yeah. and was like, you know what? I'm a beautiful Hollywood starlight. And guess what? Like, yeah. I'm going to get my boobs cut off because I don't want to die. I have a thousand children I adopted. Yeah. And like, I know like we mock celebrity cause like it is a ridiculous thing, Yeah, but you can't overlook like the power that it has, you know, like people are, we're all mad at like, I think a uh, Chrissy Teigen at some point because she kept grieving the loss of her child right a miscarriage yeah and it was like really upsetting for her people were like oh my god can you stop talking about it and it's like someone was like no i want her to keep talking about it because like they're like i'm not over mine yet yeah and like it took years it took right it takes like, a people, long time and it's nice when somebody like with some notoriety says it because it makes you feel not crazy just yeah. like these families mm-hmm. with rita hayworth exactly so so uh, important what uh i what a important story. story. <laughs> you want to have some fun? I do. Okay, let's, let's go leave. get another drink. <laughs> um, so everybody listening, I need you to know that our podcast has lost about 30 pounds of hair this week. Yes! <laughs> Katie got had been growing her hair out for her wedding, and then her wedding got postponed eighty thousand times. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So she just got all her hair chopped I off. Did I mean this was like my hair was like what like at like the bottom of my ribs? Like, yeah, it was really it was long. Like waist length. Yeah. So yeah, I got it all chopped off. It feels so fucking good, and it looks great. Thank Does you. Does Beyonce like it that yes, length? He, loves he likes it, it yeah. shorter. Well, he likes it whatever. It, like it really because yeah. this is just my thing. Like mm-hmm. I literally every like four or five years, I just get yeah. all of my hair chopped yeah. off. You grow it out long, and then you chop it. And you grow it out long. Yeah, yeah, it's just my pattern. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's a healthy pattern to have. I think There's so. It keeps everybody on their toes. Yeah. <laughs> but. So are you ready to know what you're drinking? Yes, it looks great. So this drink is called More Like Me. Mm. And it is an ounce and a half of bourbon. Then you squeeze fresh lemon juice in it and you put in some strawberry jam or strawberry Ooh. preserves. And then you top it with some rosemary and like stir it in there. Love it. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Oh, ma'am. 
That's delicious. I love it's a jammy so nice. cocktail. Yeah. Mm. I really That's like the good. way it tastes. It's like bitter and then tart and sweet and mm-hmm. fresh. Ugh. I yeah. love a bourbon cocktail. Me too. Mm. <laughs> and this one has a lot of bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as I was telling Katie during the break, please, everybody listening, do not feel embarrassed if you don't know who Flo Kennedy is. I didn't know who she was. I only know her because of pictures because I have to put up pictures every day on Instagram. Right. Yeah. I I was like really embarrassed. I was like, God, she's like a prominent feminist. And like, I really don't know anything about her except for now. I know she like wears cowboy hats, yeah, which I don't like crazy cowboy know hats. why. <laughs> Neither do I. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel crazy that like I never heard of her and I was fucking gender studies major yeah i think <laughs> one of the things about flo kennedy as you will hear is that she does not apologize for what <laughs> she thinks and she doesn't put a cherry on top like well, she doesn't perfect. make it cute so i think it's been very easy for people to ignore her contributions because they don't want her as a role model okay interesting i feel like that happens a lot yeah especially <laughs> to like women of color yeah yeah, yeah. it's like mm, you're a little too bold and brash exactly exactly <laughs> so i'm gonna tell you the story of flo kennedy mm-hmm. and um my sources are encyclopedia womanica for the love of history the dead ladies show she wrote um an autobiography called color me flow on the cover of which she's like flipping people off <laughs> like Love it. the cover of her autobiography That's perfect um and then there is a biography about her called florence flow kennedy the life of a black feminist radical awesome so are you ready yes i'm ready <laughs> as a contemporary to rita hayworth Flo was born February 11th, 1916. Are you kidding me? She is two years different from Rita Hayworth. I can't It's so weird to me that she's older than Rita Hayworth. Two years older than Rita Hayworth. That's bananas. It is. (laughs) She was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Her father was a Pullman porter. So after slavery, George Pullman hired former enslaved people onto sleep trains that would go across the country and it was their job to carry people's luggage so that is what her dad had done and then after that her father had a taxi business in kansas city missouri kennedy uh was one of five daughters all girls in the house and although they lived in poverty during the great depression she had such a happy childhood full of love and support from both of her parents. Now there was plenty of racism to go around because her family lived in a mostly white neighborhood and Flo remembers her father had to be armed with a shotgun on a regular basis in order to ward off the strong neighborhood KKK presence that were attempting to drive her family out of town and remind them that they did not belong there. Oh my God. She later said this. My parents gave a fantastic sense of security and worth. By the time the bigots got around to telling us that we were nobody, we already knew we were somebody. So she just had wonderful parents. She also commented that they taught her that they had the same rights as everybody else. And that if authority figures like teachers or anybody in government um, treated them unfairly, that Flo didn't have to listen to them. 
Wow. That she could walk away and just say, no, I'm not doing what you're saying. That's incredible. It is. And also it's very bold for them to be teaching their daughter that when like, it's not super safe. It isn't safe. Like the safe thing is, you know, I've, a lot of friends would be like, yeah, my parents always told me just like, keep your head down. Like, you know, do what you're supposed to ways. do. Be yeah. quiet. And they were like, if your teacher's treating you unfairly, walk away and say, I'm not doing that. That's incredible. Yeah. That's and it's so just, brave. It gave her so much confidence too. Yeah. She comments that her and her sisters felt flawless. <sighs> like their parents told them there is nothing wrong with you. Oh my God. It's just so wonderful because like now to my white middle-class daughter like if i did that she'd be a spoiled asshole yeah but like that is what was needed for like so a black woman the, yeah. in the south yeah you're a flawless girl yeah also i feel like kids now are like okay mom whatever you know <laughs> like shut up you just want to post a picture of me on your instagram stop mom. quoting beyonce i hate you <laughs> exactly <laughs> So she ends up out of this childhood graduating the top of her class from Lincoln High School, which today is a four-year college prep magnet school in Kansas City. After high school, Flo worked a number of jobs, including um, at a hat shop with her sister and operating elevators. But while Flo was working in her late teens, early 20s, she noticed a big injustice. One thing was that in her town, the local Coca-Cola company, who is well-known at that period in history for being notoriously racist, Mm. um, Flo saw that they weren't hiring black delivery drivers. So she organized in her town a Coca-Cola boycott. Wow. And it was a large-scale boycott and her first successful boycott. They started hiring black delivery drivers because of Flo, like, in her early 20s, deciding at this town that they were going to boycott Coca-Cola. That's amazing. It's really cool. But things wouldn't always be that easy for Flo. Like many black people in the U.S. in the 40s, freedom was extremely limited. On one incident, Flo and her sister Grace, which seems to be her sister that was closest in age and had the closest friendship with her, um, they were on this bus trip and they were at a rest stop. And at the rest stop, there was a cafe and the cafe did not serve colored Americans And her and her sister refused to leave the cafe. This is in the 40s, before the big sit-ins in the 60s. So this is in the 40s. They refused to leave the cafe. They're sitting on their stools. They're peacefully staying there. And the crowd jeered them and yelled at them, pulled them from their (gasps) stools, and threw them outside. Oh, my God. Flo dislocated her spine. (gasps) I didn't even know that could happen. Oh, my God. And her sister had a really hard time leading her away from this terrible crowd and back onto this bus. For weeks, Flo was in bed, completely immobilized, with a cast from her neck (gasps) down to her tailbone. (sighs) And her, like, neck was sideways. (gasps) um, And it limited movement in her neck for the rest of her life. A lot of pictures of her at protests, like more modern-day protests, she's seen sitting down because it was just, like, excruciating pain. Kind of like the accident with – I'm, like, absolutely (laughs) blanking (laughs) on her name. Mexican painter. Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo. Wow. Early onset dementia here. (laughs) Frida Kahlo. Just like the accident with Frida Kahlo that, like, plagued her 
for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, this is something that was a big, big struggle. Struggle. I will say later, Flo did sue both the bus company and the cafe and did receive damages. <gasps> Great. So, like, she was always going after people that treated her with injustice. Great. She did not let it go. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Flo's mother did get cancer and die in 1942. Oh. So, Flo and Grace decide, you know what? We're going to leave Missouri. We're tired of being in the South. We're going to go to New York City. So they moved to a little apartment in Harlem, the two girls together, and eventually the rest of the family followed as well. The oh, cool. rest of the sisters and okay. the dad. So they're all in New York. Um, now, Flo goes to New York, and she's like, you know, I really didn't come here to go to school, but New York has, like, a lot of schools. Yeah. So I went. And um, she thought, you know, the only way to make real social change is if I go to law school. So, in the 1940s, oh she God. gets into Columbia what? and majors in pre-law. And, you know, it was hard because the system was set up for white males and yeah. her peers and teachers are not treating her like she's being serious. But she does graduate from Columbia in a pre-law program in 1944. Wow. That's incredible. It's so incredible. However, to be a lawyer, you have to go to, like, post-grad like you have to go to law school right and she had graduated from columbia so she's like i'm gonna apply to columbia law but the dean like rejected her and then like specifically reached out to her and was like i want you to know i didn't reject you because you're black it has nothing to do with you being black i rejected you because you're a woman <laughs> <laughs> Um, love <laughs> what? great love being a double minority this is Thank working you. out so well this is perfect me. that's wonderful I, as if that would be better it's like <laughs> no i'm not racist i'm sexist <laughs> and she goes it feels the same yeah yeah, yeah it's the same I, still Thank sucks you. for right? me so then she, of course, as she liked to do, threatened to sue Columbia, <laughs> and they found a spot. There you go. <laughs> Real quick, they found a spot. She was the only black person admitted that year, and one of yeah, only so it nine wasn't about women. Race. <laughs> one of only nine women and the only black person. You can't tell me then that it wasn't about race. It was absolutely like... about race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So she also, oh my God, to Columbia's credit, if you get... On Columbia uh, Law School's website, they have an entire page dedicated to Flo and her entire timeline, including them rejecting her from the school. Well, that's nice. I it do. Is cool. I like that they're owning up to it. It's not like the Rockettes yeah. of their website was like, no, none of that <laughs> ever, ever happened. happened. Like yeah. <laughs> they're very much like, here's her timeline. She was an amazing lawyer and we were assholes. <laughs> so perfect. Cool. <laughs> okay. So she begins her studies there, and this is where her idea of intersectionality comes from. She is one of the first people to publicly bring forward the idea of intersectionality. Oh. So in 1946, at Columbia, she wrote a paper that analyzed the discourse of race and sex. She hoped that if people started to compare the experience of women to the experience of black people, that it would hasten the formation of an alliance between the two disenfranchised groups. Huh. 
Flo graduated from Columbia Law in 1951 and was the first black person to do so. <gasps> Not the first really? black woman, the first black person to graduate from Columbia Law. Oh, my God. Good for her. Jesus Christ. Honestly. <laughs> but it was really hard for her to find work because she had been excluding excluded from all like the good old boys clubs you know yeah and she was seen as unhirable by most company standards she did uh get a job in 1951 doing what she called shit work which (laughs) was making sandwiches getting coffee and making copies with a law degree from columbia ridiculous um Reminder, she's also using her salary to take care of her aging father and all her sisters living in New York. Oh, my God. So she would routinely turn to legal action to get equal medical care for her dad and safe apartment living for her sisters who couldn't buy apartments in every neighborhood because they were black. Mm. So because she couldn't get a good job in 1954, she opened her own law office. (gasps) Her own law office. That reminds me of Patsy Mink. Yeah. Just being like, okay, if you're not going to let me be a what fucking I want, doctor, I'll, I'll just, just do it. Change the laws. Become a politician. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so she was doing some matrimonial work and some like assigned criminal cases. She was one of only 19 black female lawyers in New York State. Wow. The whole state. <laughs> one of 19. Now, from this point forward... None of this story is in chronological order. Okay, cool. This is going to be called Anecdotes in the Life of Flo Kennedy. (laughs) It's the rest of this story. Okay. Networking is impossible for Flo. She's excluded from doing all the things like the cigar clubs with the white boys. So she, I'm sure she's not out on the golf course. Right. Nobody's <laughs> inviting her. So <laughs> she doesn't have a master's jacket. Yeah. <laughs> so she starts hosting parties in her two-bedroom apartment called Smokers. No. And <laughs> hundreds of white male law students would show up and hang out with Flo. It's just like Flo and all these boys just like <laughs> talking law. And then like when they would graduate, they would have Flo in the back of their mind as like an important person. Oh my gosh. That's so perfect. So she was like getting in on the ground level. <laughs> and her sister said, you know, Flo was pretty much always the only black person and the only woman in the room. So she would use her loud mouth to talk back pretty often. Well, and I love that she's like, I am not going to fade into the background here. So let's just take advantage of that. And I am going to stick out as much as I can, which I'm guessing has the (laughs) best. Oh my gosh. The the, the Western gear. She is looking fly. So in 1956, she kind of hit it big when uh, Billy Holiday asked <gasps> her to be her lawyer. No. So Billy Holiday, as we know, was being prosecuted for drug charges and she had liver disease. So Flo kept her out of police custody while she was dying in a New York hospital. Oh my God. That's her lawyer. What the fuck? So Flo then actually represented Holiday's estate. Also the estate of Charlie Parker, who was an African-American jazz saxophonist. And she got money for both of them successfully because the, um, organization, the music 
companies, organizations, record labels were not paying them for their music. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like, they were one not to do (laughs) pay them. But at this point, she's kind of disheartened, even though she's doing these big profile cases. She was like, you know what? Law isn't cutting it. I'm not even earning a decent living. And she questioned if law was the way to change society. It didn't help that one of her legal partners um, betrayed her and she was stuck paying a whole bunch of defrauded clients. Oh, Jesus Christ. She did end up getting married in 1957 to a writer (laughs) who was severely abusive alcoholic white man. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was nine years younger than her and drank himself to death pretty quickly. She denies ever loving him, um, but it seems like at some point he made her laugh and they had fun together, but she did never remarry and she never had children and was very openly anti-marriage. In fact, she said, why would you lock yourself in a bathroom just because you have to pee three times a day? (laughs) Doesn't make sense. (laughs) And she urged women to resist day-to-day acts of oppression. Just don't just analyze what you're doing and why yeah yeah ladies (laughs) so earlier i mentioned intersectionality and i'm by no means saying she made up intersectionality but she was the first big voice for it she fought for racism sexism unfair abortion laws lgbtq plus rights sex worker rights reproductive laws discrimination against ex-prisoners and malicious and stereotypical representation in the media i feel like she is uh the exact person people hate because like they're like no you can't just you know speak out against everything Everything. and she's like watch me yes i fucking can because all of these things are important yeah she's just continually fighting she said that steady a steady and consistent attack on a bunch of fronts is the best way to have a revolution that will change faster She used disruptive and attention-grabbing protests and focused on big targets, those that she said were practitioners of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. She was ready for it. In her words, quote, I'm only interested in working on society as a whole because it takes as much time to get one ass out of the ringer as it does to stop the ringer. Yeah. So she's just like, you know what? I fought for a really long time to help Billie Holiday. But what if I just like put the brakes on the fucking record label? Yeah. It would take just as much effort. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. But there's a trigger for her at this time. She was arrested for the first time. She would be arrested multiple other times, but this time changed her. In 1965, there was a gas explosion near her home and the police put up a barricade. It's her neighborhood. She waits behind the barricade to make sure everything's safe. Then she noticed they started letting several white men pass to go to their homes. They are lawyers, doctors, kind of just like she is, a high-quality living. Um, So she approached the police officers, showed them her ID. Can I pass? I live here. They said no. She waited. (sighs) Fifteen more white men passed. She's kind of standing there getting frustrated. She wants to go home from a long day work. Um, so when they were letting the next group of white men pass, she just joined the group. The police officers pushed her into a police car and (gasps) she said, I'm a lawyer. I live in this neighborhood. This is a double standard. But she was charged with resisting arrest and (sighs) obstruction of justice. Oh my 
God. She explained the brutality and humiliation, saying that at the jail she was stripped naked by a female police officer and made to squat to see if she was holding anything inside of her body. (laughs) Yeah, because she was planning on fucking going to jail that day. What the hell? Right. She um, spread this injustice far and wide, but was convicted, (gasps) and her appeals through the years were denied. What? Her sister said that after this, she was different. Just Flo's activism ramped up to a new level because she was like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm glad that it went that way because I feel like sometimes, like... It can shut you down. Yeah, like I feel like when that stuff happened to me a couple years ago. Like mm. I, I felt like I shut down a little bit yeah. and I was like, like disappointed in myself. That mm-hmm. I felt like a different, weaker person. Right. You know? And like, I'm glad that she like took it and ran with it. Oh and yeah. Was like, I'm going to try and stop this from happening to other people. And I think part of that is her parents. And part yeah. of that is her education that she was like, no, I am a fucking lawyer. And no, my parents told me I don't have to fucking listen to you. Yeah. Um, and she just like, and also obviously her personality like plays into it. Oh yeah. A big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, one way for her to get involved was she thought, okay, I think people need to see black people. Mm-hmm. So she decided to start a media workshop where she advocated against racist representation or the lack of representation in the media. At one protest, Flo and the others were invited upstairs, like up in a high rise in New York to state their case. And this influenced one of her favorite rules for activism. When you want to get to the suites, start in the streets. She had a rude mouth and it gained criticism from people. She was threatened and ridiculed, but she didn't give a fuck. Flo really understood the media and she used them to build public pressure, to give press releases. She started a black radio show. She started a newsletter and she was using her growing fame. She led boycotts against companies that didn't have black people in their commercials and was successful. She did this thing called Wednesdays in Mississippi where she would take women of all races and religion just to talk to women in little towns to try to change their minds about people who were different from them. That's incredible. She hosted a show on public TV called the flow show that ran (laughs) into the nineties. She was also on many television shows and movies because she wanted to display herself as a positive black character in positive black storylines. Movies included the landlord, who says I can't ride a rainbow. Some of my best friends are men born in flames and come back Africa because she was vocal and on TV. People started to notice her and ask for her help. Here are some examples. (laughs) After 300 years, Harvard decided to let in a small number of women. This is in the early seventies. But every man and woman had to sit for exams in Lowell hall, but there was one bathroom and it was only for men. <laughs> so the women had lobbied for a bathroom, a new bathroom, or to use that bathroom. But they said, no, during the exam, if you need a bathroom, just get up and find one across the street. Oh, but it was a timed exam, and that took 15 minutes out of their <gasps> exam. They're trying to make it so women can't get in. And these women said, let's call Flo. So she hosted the P-In on Harvard Yard. <laughs> Where they brought glass jars with a yellow liquid that looked like pee. Oh, my God. It may or may not have been pee. (laughs) Um, And Flo gave a speech. 
And after her speech, they all opened their jars of yellow liquid and let it flow down the steps of Harvard. (gasps) Wow. And she threatened that next year when we do this, we're going to come back with the real thing. (laughs) So they got a bathroom. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It's just like, give them a fucking bathroom, you asshole. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Also, frankly, there should be more than one bathroom in Lowell Hall anyways. Honestly. (laughs) Honestly. But that was classic flow. All of her things were fun and lighthearted and big, Mm -hmm. but also serious. Yeah. So she loved to tell this anecdote. She says there's a black lady at the dentist and she's in the chair and the dentist pokes her gums and then her jaw and then her tongue and then her teeth. And then the dentist stops and looks down because the woman has a grip on his testicles. And he says, what is this? And she says, now we aren't going to hurt each other, are we, Doc? But the point was, when you apply the right kind of pressure to the right sensitive area, people become much more worried about your happiness and comfort. And honey, they can't afford to figure out how hard we can squeeze. That's so true. She's insane. I love it because, I mean, nobody said the word penis like on TV back then. And she was like just so willing to be like, let's pee on Harvard. Let's grab somebody's testicles. Yeah. Nobody fucking cares. Here's my cowboy hat. Yeah. She's insane. I love it. Um, She also picketed outside of the Colgate Company headquarters because they weren't hiring women. And they poured cleaning products all over the steps. And she said there are very few jobs that actually require a a penis or a vagina. All other jobs should be open to everybody. She also hosted a protest at the Miss America pageant. Because they were exploiting women. So Flo led hundreds of women to Atlantic City, making a national news with signs that said, Welcome to Miss America Cattle Auctions. Oh and on the news, many of the women, these hundreds of women, were throwing their bras and girdles into what was called a freedom trash can. And this gave rise to the inaccurate but long-lasting... <sighs> thought that feminists burn their bras unbelievable it's so funny because (laughs) i always knew that it was a fallacy like i always knew that it never like actually happened yeah but like you know i remember like people asking about it in school and like they're always being kind of like different little stories Mm -hmm. like i'm like this might be where it comes from like i love the flow is a part of this narrative (laughs) (laughs) exactly And then in 1971, there was a rebellion at Attica Prison. It is the bloodiest prison riot in the United States. And one of, yeah. I just listened to a whole story about this today. I had never, yes, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. This is something that she got really up in arms about because she is a prison reform. I mean, she's an everything person. Yeah. But prison reform is one of those things. And, Everybody was like, oh, this isn't our thing. This isn't our thing. And she kept saying, no, we are Attica. Yeah. Attica's us and we are them. That should not happen. Dude. And that, that fucking prison uprising was so fucked up. Like it, it was just like, I, if you like my favorite murder literally just covered it this week. And it is such a tragic story because they were treating these prisoners like cattle. Right. They were spending 
21 cents per meal on each prisoner. Which is absurd, even in then money. Yeah, even in them, it's ridiculous. And it sucks, too, because then, like, the narrative became, like, these prisoners were so violent, and they did this, and they killed these people, and that wasn't what happened. It was, like, the uprising happened, and they, like, took these hostages to, like, prove their, to, like, be, like, we want more food and health care, and we want to not be beaten by the guards, and, like, just, like, being treated like human or like not a rat in my toilet or yeah. like if you give me food maybe it shouldn't have mold on it like yeah. just basic human rights yeah exactly yeah. and then it was like you know the national guard came in and shot the hostages and they spread the lie that the prisoners had right. slit their throats and that wasn't what it happened didn't happen, that no. didn't fucking happen and i think one of the crazy things about this um is that everybody kept telling Flo, like, you're a racism activist. You're a female rights activist. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't care about Attica. And she's like, no, I do care about <laughs> I Attica. Do. Yeah. Like, I, I care about that and the other stuff. Because you can care about other things. <laughs> like, you can, you can focus on more than one thing. It's okay. Yeah. God, I, I love, it's so frustrating to, like, probably being Flo and being told what you can and cannot believe in and protest Mm -hmm. and work toward like it's like don't put me in a fucking box right exactly Mm. okay so she knew obviously how to get the attention of the media by being outrageous Mm -hmm. right that was her thing but she also really wanted white women and black power to work together. She was the only black woman in the NYC NOW chapter. She was also a founding member of NOW. So wow. let's remember that. She also founded the National Black Feminist Organization. She co-founded the feminist party that nominated Shirley Chisholm ah. as the first female presidential candidate on an ever ballot. She brought two white feminists to an all-black power conference and caused quite a stir (laughs) um, and just said, look, civil rights and feminism are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And this is a direct quote. We have an institutionally racist, sexist, classist society that damages, of course, black people, Mm -hmm. but also women, gay people, ex-cons, sex workers, children, old people, differently abled people, Native Americans. And if we analyze oppression, we can learn a lot about how to deal with it. God, she's so far ahead of like everybody else i mean she's like the only one saying like you have to cut the fucking head off like (laughs) let's look at the top of the problem because it all goes to the top and we're all suffering because of this fucking problem right this is a top down (laughs) the power structure so like yeah Mm. And I like that she's seeing how it affects everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, this affects more than just you or I or them. Like, right. This is a bigger problem. She was very ahead in that sense. Like yeah. she was looking at so many people. Now, I also changed that quote a little bit. Like I said, like differently able. Like, yeah. That was not an exact direct quote. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, words like Native American and sex workers instead yeah. of like <laughs> things that would have been more socially acceptable to say back then. Yeah. Because, like, LGBTQ plus was not a word back then. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. So, at this point, 
she becomes really great friends with Gloria Steinem and they start a 20 year lecture tour together where they went around the country going to colleges and speaking and many people would ask them, hey, are you guys lesbians? And she said, are you my alternative? Every <laughs> single time. Because it's like, yeah, Who two, cares? two feminists can't be in the same room without <laughs> hooking up. <Right>. Like, <laughs> Because we hate men. Yeah. Like, meanwhile, she was previously married. She yeah. could be bi. She could be straight. <laughs> like, who cares? Okay. <sighs> But on these lecture circuits, she knew she was important and she demanded that she was paid a certain amount. She demanded that she was treated the same as other people that were giving lectures. She's like, no, I'm a fucking lawyer. Yeah. He's done some big ass cases like back up. But she didn't stop working in law because she was doing activism. She was still a big time lawyer. She actually took on many controversial clients that needed defending because she was a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. She um, was the lawyer for the Black Power Movement leader, H. Rap Brown, on his gun charges. She was the lawyer for Valerie Solanas, who shot Andy Warhol. <laughs> she was the lawyer for Asanta Shakur and many members of the Black Panthers. And often, if people were arrested protesting with her, she would take on their cases as well. Wow. Flo was also an advocate in the courts for sex workers and spoke publicly about the discrimination of prostitution, saying, I think that neither the feminists, the church, the government, or Anybody else has the right to say what a woman cannot choose to endeavor in for whatever reason. Yeah. Like, let her use her body how she wants. Yeah. So during a lot of these court cases, and one in particular, a judge yelled at her for wearing slacks. Because <laughs> women weren't allowed to what wear slacks. What year is this? I'm telling you, Katie. Jesus Christ. It's insane. She wasn't allowed to wear literal pants in the courtroom. <laughs> And Flo famously said, isn't it interesting how two of the most anti-feminist institutions, the church and the court, all the men wear dresses. <laughs> and the lawyer's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, You're wearing a dress. Why can't I wear pants? That's so true and ridiculous. And <laughs> I can't believe that this person who is again like friends with gloria steinem is being yelled at for wearing pants in that, the courtroom i mean even like if susan b anthony was wearing bloomers like <laughs> doing her thing like insane <sighs> she was also a strong opponent to military intervention in a lot of places at this time it was the vietnam war and she coined the term pentagonaria <laughs> <laughs> because of the Pentagon. Never heard of that term. Not me but... either, but the Pentagon causing gonorrhea around the world. Love that. <laughs> Pentagonorrhea. <laughs> um, among some of her famous court victories are those that are for abortion and contraceptive rights. And I left this until the end because these are currently under attack <sighs> and in danger in our country. Yeah. Flo was among a group of female lawyers that challenged New York State prohibition on abortion in 1970. During the case, she famously brought forward women as 
expert witnesses that had experienced unplanned pregnancies and gotten illegal abortions. This was the first time that they didn't just use doctors in abortion <gasps> cases. Really? Really. That's unbelievable. She made the news by bringing red coat hangers to St. Patrick's Cathedral in front during this court case and like on the news saying this isn't safe. This isn't safe. And women had never been brought forward to speak about this before. So then there's this hearing in New York because of all of this that she's doing and it's New York state. And Flo says, sure, sure. I'll come. But, um, I'm going to request three female judges to hear the case but she knew there was only one female judge on all of the New York federal like branch. So like they couldn't even do what she was asking as a lawyer (laughs) after her public protests and witness testimony, she was successful in reversing restrictive New York state abortion laws, making it legal up to 24 weeks pregnant to top it off. The next year, she published a book called Abortion Rap, which contains the testimony of all of the women who had illegal abortions. And this is the um, structure that they used for Roe v. Wade the next year. Oh, my God. They used her literal court proceedings to make Roe v. Wade happen. That's incredible. I have chills. I have goosebumps on my arm I can't believe that this woman was so influential and we don't even know who she is. I know. And, and it is frustrating because these rights are under attack right now. And I do want to make it clear to anyone listening, Roe v. Wade is codified in Maryland. So even if the laws are overturned, abortion will always be legal in Maryland. And there are a few other states that have done this. So Mm -hmm. if you are worried about abortion rights being under threat in your state, see if this is true in your state because they cannot restrict abortions in Maryland ever. You look it up. And Mm -hmm. then also like you can find friends and family or strangers that are willing to let you come stay. Yeah. If you need help. Oh my God. There is, there are so many network, like my old boss (laughs) at NARAL used to literally drive girls across the state of Texas to the very few abortion clinics that were left. Right. Like, it literally has to come to that sometimes. Right. Of like someone putting you in their car and taking you to get this procedure done. It's right. so crucial. It um, is crucial. And there are people who will help you. Oh, so absolutely. Like, just, I mean, I, I mean, there might not be anybody listening who needs help, but there might be people listening who know people who need help. So like, yeah. reach out. Oh like, my God. We can yeah. find places. Anybody can find places. Absolutely. So... She didn't stop there. She also spearheaded a lawsuit against the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) Taking on the big guys. She decided that um, their campaign against abortion was against the separation of church and state. And this is where the famous line, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament came from. Oh, absolutely. And that's like a really famously used line. And I had no idea that it was from her. I didn't know either. But she also says that it was something an Irish taxi driver told her. So. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but now 
how she just says it, which love I love it. So also way to quote your sources flow. <laughs> honestly. So in 1986, she had a 70th birthday party kind of weirdly at the New York city playboy club, <laughs> which was sponsored by Hugh Hefner's daughter. Which, like, her and Gloria Steinem were like such good friends and Gloria Steinem hates Hugh Hefner. Yeah. She openly talks about oh, hating him, <laughs> which I find so funny because Flo just doesn't fucking care. She doesn't oh, care. I love that. So Flo passed away at 84 years old, December 21st, 2000. Upon her passing, the former mayor of New York said, if you found a cause for the downtrodden of someone being abused someplace, by God, Flo Kennedy would be there. People magazine said she was the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battleground of feminism and activism. And she always told people, political power is available to you. If it's close enough to touch you, you can touch it. But I think the best thing Flo ever said is, I'm just a loud-mouthed, middle-aged colored lady with a fused spine and three feet of intestines missing. <laughs> and a lot of people think I'm crazy. Maybe you do too. But I never stop to wonder why I'm not more like them. The mystery is, why aren't people more like me? <laughs> and so that's Flo Oh my God. God, she's amazing. I am like blown away by her story. Yeah, that was incredible. I oh. mean, she just changed the lives of so many people and is so amazing. Yeah, she really is. That's just, mm. she's amazing. I, I just, oh, very okay. cool. So now we need to talk about these two ladies in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Wow. I mean, it's really crazy to me that they were contemporaries of each other. Um, you know, I f feel like sometimes it's interesting to start at the beginning because they both grew up in the Great Depression. Yeah. And I think Rita Hayworth feels so far away and mm -hmm. Flo Kennedy feels so <clears throat> current. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I couldn't believe that Flo died in 2000 at such an old age. Yeah. <laughs> She's in her 80s. Yeah. No. Like, in my mind, I'm like, no, like, Rita Hayworth would still be alive today. And right. it's like, she'd be over 100. Like, no, she wouldn't. Like, <laughs> exactly. You know? And it's just, I don't know. It's really interesting to me that one feels so current and one feels so of the past because I also feel like Flo lived her life in the future. Mm. And I think that Rita was forced into this weird awful victorian controlling like socialite era socialite era of like i feel like rita had no power yeah i think part of that has to do with their cities like i think yeah. um new york city versus hollywood is just such a different vibe yeah. and i think Flo being in new york was able like in the new york law scene was able to move forward, but being Rita in a Hollywood, like golden era, like movie scene, they're mm -hmm. forcing you back almost. Yeah. Well, and I also think that it's really crucial to see how their family set them up. Absolutely. Because 
Flo learned her value as a person from her family. So she didn't really have to go through life questioning whether she was worth it. And Rita learned that she had no value Mm. as a person. And it's interesting because they both kind of like, like, I think it's easy to forget that like, Rita started as like kind of being like an ethnic minority, Mm. you know, even though she is like, she is like a white woman, but like she was like too ethnic for this and too, you know, uh, whatever exotic for that. And Mm. it wasn't until she was made to appear more white that she was able to play exotic roles in this really like fucked up way, which also brings us to, the idea of flow being so in, in just pinpoint on representation in the media. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I put that down too, <laughs> that like there isn't, um, there isn't somebody fighting at that point for like different representation in commercials. No. Like we just recently started having like gay kisses in Hallmark commercials. And people were up in arms when it started. Exactly. People it's crazy. literally like I'm never watching a Hallmark movie again. Like I can't believe that they would allow not even like Hallmark was making a commercial. They just allowed a commercial to air with a gay kiss. <laughs> and it was like, is this the battle you right. really want to be fighting you piece of shit <laughs> honestly <laughs> i also think it was interesting like the school versus no school yes. situation because you talked about rita later in life just like feeling uh, like insecure about her knowledge because mm-hmm. she wasn't afforded the right to go to well middle it school, was stripped away school. from right her. it was taken yeah completely taken whereas Flo was like no i'm gonna go to school and if you tell me i can't i'm gonna fucking go to more school yeah but i bet you if you put rita and Flo in a room together like you said like Rita just seems much more educated. Like when we did, like, what do you know mm-hmm. about her? And you're like, she just looks more like more classy, more classy than like a Marilyn Monroe. And like, I think if you put both of those in the room together and you were like, which one of these girls is a lawyer, you probably pick Rita. Right. You know? And I had so, no idea Flo Kennedy was a lawyer. I had no, wouldn't have, I, I didn't know who she was. So like, <laughs> but, it, but when you look at a picture but, of her, she doesn't look like a lawyer. No, she looks wild. But wild, I love west. Like that. I love it when people are like, yes, well, I'm a doctor. And also I say the word fuck. Yeah. Just challenging the expectations of people is so important mm-hmm. because if you don't do what Flo is doing, you get what happened to Rita. Mm-hmm. You get people being so disappointed that Rita's not Gilda. Right. And that's not fair to fucking anyone. It's not fair to look at Flo and not think that she went to an Ivy League school and graduated with a degree in law. Mm-hmm. That's not fair. And it's also not fair to expect Rita to be the girl of your fantasies when she's actually just a real fucking person. Right. Like, none of it is fair. And I just feel like no one was taking care of these women. No one. And it's like, you know, one of them's shy mm-hmm. and one of them's bold and one of them's getting married all these times and one of them's not. Mm-hmm. It's like they were both living what they, neither of them were, were living the life of like a normal 1960s <laughs> yeah. woman. No. They were like the two extremes of a they 1960s were. woman. 
And it's just interesting because I don't think like, obviously like Flo didn't need to be taken care of in any sense of the word, but she is taking care of everyone else. And that's all Rita ever wanted. And I just kind of wrote down like, God, I wish Rita had Flo. Mm. I wish that Rita could have had someone in her life to be like, you are valued. You are important, which is what Flo is trying to do for a lot of people. And she doesn't stop at just one group, which is what I love about her. And I honestly think, like, because they were contemporaries, I do mm-hmm. think, like, if Flo was in a room with Rita, she would make her feel good. I think like, so, too. I don't think Flo is the type of woman who is, like, like, I know she did, like, a Miss, Miss America protest, but I don't think she's the type of person who would sit at a table of Miss America contestants and be like, you're a shitty woman. Yeah. You're a bad no, I don't think woman. so. She would just, like, build them up and be like, hey, here's our cause. Like, yeah. Show me, show me how you can be a part of this cause. Yeah, because again, I don't think she was opposed to like the women competing in Miss America. No. I think she was like the institution. What are we doing? What is this institution? <laughs> Who is benefiting from this? You know, like let's look at the right. institution. And speaking of institutions, I think it's so funny that we have Columbia College and Columbia movies being like these kind of looming villains. These are institutions that are not designed for these people, and they're also not designed to make them feel welcome or safe. Right. But they would love to profit off. <laughs> sure. And you talked about peeing on the ground. <laughs> and so did I. <laughs> and I just think it's really ironic because we learned in the Phyllis Wheatley Statue of Liberty episode that Columbia is a female symbol. Columbia right. is the woman that represents America, like Marianne and Britannica. Right. And it's so funny to me that these two institutions named after <laughs> the symbol of female American resilience are so were, uh, were, you mm-hmm. know, we'll use that term, you know, we're so hell bent on <laughs> stifling women's independence and their success. I think too, one really scary and ironic thing about both of these stories is that Rita as a pretty, you know, put together white women, woman was told to be cooperative. Yeah. And Flo has to enact the angry black woman. Yeah. Like cause. Mm-hmm. And I just think that those two stereotypes are mm-hmm. what lead us to like the situations that we're in now. <sighs> yeah. Where it's like, like I didn't know that Gloria Steinem and Flo Kennedy were like so close and like did all of this together. Yeah. Because nobody wants to talk about Flo Kennedy because all she did was cuss and give people the finger, but it's like, that's yeah. what we needed. Oh, we needed that. We needed someone. We need it now. You know, and like people talk about like, oh, like, you know, it's so terrible that all these people are just suing corporations. And like she was like, but that's the only way I can actually fucking enact change. So like if I have that at my fingertips, Mm -hmm. I'm going to use it because not many people like me know that they can fucking do this. Right. So I am going to start this trend because people need to learn consequences for their fucked up actions and i just feel like rita never had that person to go to bat for her and she didn't think that she could do it for herself right and i just wish she did i I wish she did and i wish that she could live in the world that flo is trying to create where like 
everyone has agency, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and I love that Flo was a person who was like, some people don't. And you know what? I'm just going to make up for all the people that don't. I'm going to be the loudest fucking person in the room. Yeah. And I'm going to embrace it. Mm. And I kind of love that part of your story wasn't like, and then she decided to wear cowboy hats. Like it was just, I, who knows why, but it, no idea, <laughs> no None. idea because you know why Wikipedia is shit on her. There's nothing. <laughs> really? There's almost nothing. Isn't that upsetting uh, when someone has such a rich story and they have nothing. I was really okay, friends. Shocked. If Everybody... you have a Wikipedia account, get on it. <laughs> so, can somebody please change Flo Kennedy's story on Wikipedia? Yeah. I have no idea about the cowboy hats. Yeah. None. But I love it because I think that it's also just this big way to be like, if I'm in this fucking outfit, you're going to pay attention to me. Right. You have to. You can't turn off the camera. You have to. That's what she was doing. <laughs> um, so are you ready to toast? Yes, these I am. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I really just want to toast people that are big and loud and unashamed because it is something I don't have. Ugh, like yeah. I get really scared. Like sometimes when I'm going to share like a news article on Facebook, because mm-hmm. it's like, I believe this, but I also don't want to have to fight with all my family <sighs> and friends about it. But it's like, you know what? I should like, I should want to fight about it. I should want to be like, no, this is what I believe in. Why? And I I don't want to fight on Facebook. That's not what I mean. I don't no, no, want to no, no, be no, in like a discussion <laughs> comment, but I shouldn't be ashamed of the things I believe because I'm worried people are going to judge me. I know. Yeah. It, I've, 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 like I, I literally have traps. a feminist podcast. I know. <laughs> literally. People know that. And I'm still like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, it's oh, no, really it's a real, um, yeah, it's yeah. a really difficult situation. So cheers to cheers. big loud people that yes. don't give a shit. Please. Who do you want to toast tonight? I am going to toast people who don't stop believing in love. I, again, want to take a more positive spin on Rita's story because it was so Mm -hmm. tragic. And I just feel like every time she got married, except maybe to Dick Ames, (laughs) she really believed that she loved them Mm -hmm. and they loved her back in an equal manner. And (laughs) I feel like we're kind of, pinpointing our own insecurities right now <laughs> because like as a person who like cannot fathom that like someone would feel the same way to me mm-hmm. you know as I do about them like it is I don't know how she kept going I don't know how she kept believing in love and putting herself out there I think it's really incredible mm-hmm. so cheers to, to Rita, Rita and to love <laughs> Oh my God. All right. Yeah. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? My God. If you guys have not watched Tick, Tick, Boom, (gasps) you need to get on it. Okay. I've only seen clips, but the clip of him and Vanessa Hudgens doing that breakup song together. It's amazing. Okay. So A, Lin-Manuel Miranda's the director. (laughs) Of course. course. (laughs) But so I think most people know Jonathan Larson because of Rent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Tick, Tick, Boom is the musical he wrote before that. Yeah. And it is just so cool because Tick, Tick, Boom is the story of his life. It was like a one-man show that he did and had a couple background singers, which like Mm -hmm. Vanessa Hutchins is one of them. But the Tick, Tick, Boom movie is about him 
writing another failed musical that led him to writing Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah. And Andrew Garfield is going to sweep the Oscars this year. I'm sure. No issue. But the best part is that because of Lin-Manuel Miranda's connections, every character, background character, side character, person asking for a check at a cafe is a famous actor in a musical. <gasps> so Fun. you sweep through the movie and it's like, oh my God, that was the first guy who was the wizard in Wicked. Oh my God, that's the original cast of Rent. <laughs> oh my God. Like every, every single scene is, yeah. person. <sighs> and then even better, Andrew Garfield did all his own singing and spent a year learning how to play the piano. <laughs> to be Jonathan Larson. He was That's like, I'm not going to do real this. talent and dedication. It is because ev- if everybody else in the movie is a famous musical actor mm-hmm. and you get cast. Yeah. Katie, I cannot <laughs> sing enough phrases. I watched it with the kids and Jake and sister or producer and sister. And we were just blown away. I can't. I really do want to watch so it. Touching. Like I say, I want to watch a lot of movies and I never do. Well, because also <gasps> but- this, I thought like I knew he died young. I know Jonathan yeah. Larson died young, but I thought that he was gay and died of AIDS. Like That's everybody what I else would in think. the 90s. Yeah. No, he had a totally different situation and was not gay. A lot of his friends were gay and that's yeah. why he wrote rent. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Katie, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody watch Tick, Tick, Boom. It's free on Netflix. You have to do All right. nothing. You have to do nothing to watch it. So what are you into Perfect right plug. Now? Okay. I am going to recommend a podcast I binged last week called <laughs> Sweet Bobby. Ooh. Okay. It's only like, I think, six episodes. It is a story, a true story <laughs> okay. about a girl who was catfished. Okay. This How old? She's like... In her, like, late 20s, I think, when it starts. Okay. Mid-20s, maybe. And it goes on for a decade. No. Mm-hmm. So she thinks she's having this, like, relationship. Whirlwind romance <laughs> with this guy. And Allie, I <laughs> listened to the whole thing in one day because I couldn't stop listening. And they tell you who it was. So you find out the whole unraveling. And, like, experts are saying, like, this is the most elaborate catfishing I've ever seen. Because the person who did it, and, like, this all comes out very earlier, so I'm not spoiling mm-hmm. anything. But, like, and I feel, because I want to make this point, too, because a lot of people are like, how can this girl be so duped for 10 years? It's ridiculous. Like, I would never. Right. And it was, like, there. this person created, like, a whole bunch of fake accounts that were communicating with her. All these people that were reinforcing this like sham and it is a mind bender and it is so upsetting who it ends up being and it's unreal. So sweet Bobby, (laughs) sweet Bobby. It's so good. I literally, I, so again, Karen, Karen, Kilgariff, I was listening to her on my favorite murder and she recommended it. And I listened, I stopped my favorite murder and binged the whole series. (laughs) It's so crazy. So go listen to it and also stop fucking judging people who get catfished or join cults. Honestly. Because if you think that it could never happen to you, it could, it could. 
it just fucking could. So stop judging people. Um, And you know, I feel like it's just like a person like Rita who like really believes in love. (laughs) She just really wanted it to happen. Yeah. It's crazy. Highly recommend. (sighs) Well, all right. Find us everywhere. Please do. (laughs) We're on all of the social media. Mm -hmm. We have a patron. We give you extra little tidbits, which Mm -hmm. we're about to do in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, We have all the accounts yes and you can follow us you can like us you can comment you can get rate and review us Uh, we love that that would be the best um i feel like we've gotten two more like rates but not another review so if you could write some shit something nice that would be wonderful so much research research for you don't be an asshole i would love it if you just wrote like nice on there that's all you need to write cool nice one word you know (laughs) uh would hang out 10 out of 10 this podcast Um, (laughs) exists (laughs) good um but just we love you and we want you to also never forget that well-behaved women uh don't separate their white and dark laundry (laughs) they definitely don't and they rarely make history goodbye listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye